Hi everyone, welcome back to Daily Gospel Exegesis. Here we're all about helping you understand the text of the Gospels, really getting into the literal sense of the text, doing a proper verse-by-verse exegesis. Today's passage is a long one, so we'll get straight into it. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 28. While the people were listening, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they imagined that the kingdom of God was going to show itself then and there. Accordingly, he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to be appointed king, and afterwards return. He summoned ten of his servants and gave them ten pounds. Do business with these, he told them, until I get back. But his compatriots detested him and sent a delegation to follow him with this message. We do not want this man to be our king. Now on his return, having received his appointment as king, he sent for those servants to whom he had given the money to find out what profit each had made. The first came in and said, Sir, your one pound has brought you in ten. Well done, my good servant, he replied. Since you have proved yourself faithful in a very small thing, you shall have the government of ten cities. Then came the second and said, Sir, your one pound has made five. To this one also, he said, and you shall be in charge of five cities. Next came the other and said, Sir, here is your pound. I put it away safely in a piece of linen because I was afraid of you, for you are an exacting man. You pick up what you have not put down and reap what you have not sown. You wicked servant, he said, out of your own mouth I condemn you. So you knew I was an exacting man, picking up what I have not put down and reaping what I have not sown. Then why did you not put my money in the bank? On my return I could have drawn it out with interest. And he said to those standing by, Take the pound from him and give it to the man who has ten pounds. And they said to him, But sir, he has ten pounds. I tell you, to everyone who has will be given more, but from the man who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for my enemies who did not want me for their king, bring them here and execute them in my presence. When Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So that's our reading today. It's a long one, a really interesting one, the parable of the talents, Luke's version of the parable. Let's start by thinking about the context. Jesus is moving from Galilee. He's going up to Jerusalem for the final week of his life. As he moves towards Jerusalem, he's doing various things. He's speaking to the crowds and doing ministry. He's been moving to Jerusalem for a while. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, it's been about two months that we've been in this big section in the middle of Luke, where Jesus is gradually making his way to Jerusalem. So he's been journeying on the road for a while, and now he's very close to Jerusalem. He's almost arrived. Now, this parable of the talents, it's similar in some ways to another parable that Matthew has, which is also called the parable of the talents. So many of you listeners would be familiar with Matthew's version of the parable of the talents. You might have even heard it recently. But They seem to be different parables. There are some similarities for sure. Jesus uses similar elements, but there's some differences. So in Matthew's version, each of the servants in the parable receives different amounts of money. And then some things at the end of the parable work out differently. 
But here in Luke's version, as we'll see, each of the servants gets the same amount of money. I think the best explanation of this is that these were spoken on different occasions and were given to different audiences, and Jesus is trying to make different points each time. In Matthew's version, Jesus gives it in the final week of his life to his disciples, and the focus there is on Christian stewardship. Jesus there is making the point that God's stewards will be accountable. In Luke's version, though, Jesus hasn't arrived in Jerusalem yet. He's doing it on the road. And the audience is the crowds. It's not his disciples. And here, the focus seems to be on clarifying the timing of the last judgment. So we'll start at verse 11. While the people were listening, or you can translate that as they heard these things. So Jesus has been in Jericho. And the text here seems to indicate that the same crowd which was with him in Jericho now hears him say this parable, so it happens straight after that. Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they imagined that the kingdom of God was going to show itself then and there. Now, this is Luke's comment on why Jesus gives this parable, so I'll read it again because it's really important in helping us interpret the meaning of the parable. Luke says, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they imagined that the kingdom of God was going to show itself then and there. Or more literally, what it says is, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So here Luke tells us specifically why Jesus gave the parable. The Jews, the people in the crowd, they believed that when the Messiah arrived in Jerusalem, he would bring in the kingdom of God straight away in this big, decisive, cataclysmic event, And they believed that the Messiah would be enthroned as king immediately in Jerusalem when he arrived. Now, by this point, many of the crowd believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And they notice that he's about to enter Jerusalem. So they're getting very excited. They expect that he's going to bring in the kingdom straight away. Jesus notices that. So in response to that view, Jesus in this parable is going to explain that his enthronement is not actually going to happen in Jerusalem. And also, he's going to use the parable to explain that what he's doing is currently planting the seeds of the kingdom of God, but the final judgment, the final fulfillment of the kingdom of God, it's not going to appear immediately, as they think it will. It's actually going to appear later. That's what he's going to teach them in this parable. So Jesus goes now into the parable of the talents, sometimes called the parable of the ten pounds. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to be appointed king. We can translate this to receive kingly power or to receive a kingdom is a good translation as well. So a man goes to a distant country to receive a kingdom. So it's a, it's kind of like a man who has the rights to the kingdom, but he needs to go away and officially receive the kingdom. He needs to be authoritative, authoritatively declared to be the king of the kingdom. What's going on here? Well, in the time of Jesus, particularly in the Roman culture, uh, in the Roman part of the world that Jesus grew up in, a king would receive a kingdom in stages. It typically didn't all happen at once. Usually what would happen, and this is true in the Old Testament as well, a person would become king like they would be anointed king, but then there would be an additional step where they would need to go to the overarching king, the person who's in charge of them, so the primary king. They would need to go to them to receive power and authority from that primary king. So they had to have this kind of coronation ceremony where the Uh, appointed leader or the appointed primary king makes this lower king a king. There has to be a coronation ceremony first in order for them to genuinely be a king. So the king often had to go away and see the primary king 
before he could be officially considered the king of his own kingdom. And you can imagine this would apply a lot to the Jewish kings of the time. So Herod, the Jewish king, had to, well, he was only allowed to be king once he was officially appointed king by uh, the Roman Caesars. So he had to go to Rome to receive his power as king of Israel, and then he could return to Israel. This is actually what happened. And a key thing here to keep in mind is that when this secondary king, this servant king, if you like, receives his kingdom, often they wouldn't come back to their kingdom straight away. They might reign uh, from a distance for a while. You should already start to see some theological implications here. There's also one particular historical backdrop that his audi- Jesus' audience probably would have thought of as Jesus told this parable. The king Archelaus, which is Herod the Great's son, in history, he literally did travel to Rome to Caesar Augustus after his father, Herod the Great, had died. So he went to Rome to be crowned as king in 4 BC. And initially he was, interestingly, he was initially proclaimed king of Israel at Jericho, interestingly, which is where Jesus is telling this story. So probably Jesus' initial audience here would be thinking of when Herod Archelaus went to receive his kingly power from the Roman Caesars in Rome. Jesus goes on and afterwards the man returned. So, and in that culture, eventually the king would return to check on their kingdom after they've received their power. Already here, you should start to see the links to Jesus. Christian theology teaches that Jesus receives his kingly throne not straight away in his ministry. It's actually when he returns to heaven that he fully gets his throne. So Jesus himself literally goes away to be coronated as king of the kingdom, and then he returns later to check on his kingdom. And really, his final coming hasn't happened yet. He's still up in heaven. He has not yet returned to check on his kingdom. Some scholars believe you can also see this period of time when the king is away. So in the parable, the king is away from his kingdom for a period of time. Maybe Jesus intends us to think of this as the time that we have in our own lifetime, the time before we meet the king, we meet God on our judgment day. And that's a legitimate way of interpreting this as well. We're given a certain amount of time in our life to produce fruit until we meet God, our king, on the day of our death. Verse 13 The king summoned ten of his servants. So while he goes away, or rather before he goes away, the king is giving stewardship of his property to his servants. Now, we know that these servants are supposed to represent the apostles and the other leading disciples of the church, the people who are going to be in charge of looking after Jesus' kingdom while he's away in heaven. That's the meaning here. So in the parable, the the king summons ten of his servants and he gives them ten pounds. That can be translated different ways because this unit of measurement, a pound, it's a little bit uncertain. Some translations have it as a minor, M-I-N-A, or a talent, it's a talent, 10 talents, or even a gold coin. So those words, pound, minor, talent, or gold coin, apparently all mean the same thing, although scholars are a bit divided on exactly how much money it uh, plays, it works out to be. In this parable, the king gives each of his servants one pound. He gives them each one pound. We can roughly estimate that each pound was worth a hundred days worth of wages. So it's a decent amount of money. He says to them, do business with these pounds until I get back. Or you can translate that as trade with these until I come. 
So the expectation from the king is that his servants will look after the money while he's gone, and more than that, that they'll do things with it. They'll conduct business on his behalf, and they'll earn a profit, so that when he gets back, they can give him the money back, plus interest, when he returns. He's expecting them to do something with the gifts he's giving them while he's away. What do these miners or pounds or talents represent? What, is it, what are we supposed to take from these talents? If we consider that the servants mean God's apostles particularly, but also Christian disciples in general, what are the talents that Jesus or God gives the Christian leaders? It appears to be God's grace. A talent is God's grace. Or you can say that the talent is knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. God gives different amounts of grace and different types of his grace to each Christian. Maybe we can say that these talents or minors represent spiritual gifts, which are used for the building up of the kingdom. Maybe Jesus' teaching here is that he's given each of the apostles a spiritual gift that they should use in the coming years to help shepherd his church. The word here as talents, it doesn't mean talents in the modern English context. It doesn't mean talents as in uh, the special personality traits we have or the things we're good at. That's not what talents means here in this parable. You'll sometimes hear sermons to that effect as though God gives talents special abilities to each person. That's not really what it means. Here, talents means God's grace. That's the rough meaning of it. He continues in verse 14. In the parable, it says, But the king's compatriots detested him, or you can translate that, his citizens hated him. So this is not his servants. We're not talking about the king's servants anymore. We're talking about another group of people. The people that he's about to rule over, they detest him, they hate him. And they sent a delegation to follow him with this message. We do not want this man to be our king. Or you can translate that as, we do not want this man to reign over us. So in this parable, the man goes away to receive his kingly power. And in the parable, a group of the local people who are going to uh, be ruled by him, they come to the capital to declare that they don't want this man to be a king. So it's like a loud vocal group following along with the man. And when they reach the capital, they say, please don't anoint this man to be king. We don't want him to be our king. There's no reason given for why they don't want him to be their king. So it seems to be unwarranted. They don't have a good reason for why they don't, for why they want someone else to be king. In the parable, it would be very bold to actually follow the king. You have to be very brave to do that. But this is a real historical situation that happened with Archelaus. When King Archelaus went to Rome to receive his power as king of Israel, 50 people from Judea, from Israel, went to Rome with Archelaus because they didn't want Archelaus to be king. Archelaus has already killed many of the Jews. So this is a real story that did happen. Clearly, the parallel here in the parable, it's supposed to represent the Jewish leaders. These are the ones who reject Jesus as king for no good reason. They say, we don't want him to be king. Now, later, they will literally say this when it gets to Jesus' trial. They say to Pilate, this man is not our king. We have no king but Caesar. So this literally plays out in the coming days when he reaches Jerusalem. They literally come to Caesar and say, this man is not our king. So it's a really interesting parable, isn't it? In terms of how Jesus is foreshadowing the very things that the Jewish leaders are going to say about him. Verse 15. Now on his return, having received his appointment as king, or having received a kingdom, so the king now returns to his kingdom to check on it. He sent for those servants to whom he had given the money to find out what profit each had made. Verse 16, the first came in and said, Sir, your one pound has brought in ten. 
Now, that's a very good profit. This first servant has made 10 times as much as what he started with. He must have done a significant amount of good trade and banking. What does this represent, this first servant who's made 10 pounds? Basically, it refers to a disciple who has borne a lot of fruit for the kingdom. In the context of the other parables, we know that bearing fruit for God, bearing fruit for the kingdom, means following God's will as revealed through Jesus, and particularly helping more people come into the kingdom. So, in the first century, a faithful apostle or a faithful servant would have been a Christian disciple who's helped lots of other people progress into the kingdom. And in verse 17, the king in the parable says, Well done, my good servant. Or some translations would have it as good and faithful servant. Since you have proved yourself faithful in a very small thing, you shall have the government of ten cities. So notice this, this faithful servant gets ten cities. The king is a kingdom uh, is in charge of a kingdom that is a large area. So he's giving overseeing authoritative power of part of his kingdom to his, his faithful servant. He's giving this faithful servant power over ten cities or towns. What does this represent? It probably represents heaven on judgment day. It's probably saying that for the faithful servant who serves God faithfully, they will receive rewards in heaven when it comes in its fullness on judgment day. And also notice the teaching here, as we'll see, different people get different levels of rewards. So the teaching here is that not everyone will receive the same rewards in heaven. Apparently, some people will get more rewards than others. It's a controversial teaching, but that is an implication of the parable. Then comes the second and says, Sir, your one pound has made five. So this second servant has done a reasonable job, but not quite as good as the first one. He's only made five pounds, whereas the first servant made ten. Still, the king says to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You shall be in charge of five cities. Now, we as Christians, we want to hear those words said to us when we arrive at the throne on Judgment Day. Of course, we all long to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. So he gets put in charge of five cities. His reward is not as big as the first one because he didn't do quite as well as the first one. So again, the teaching is on Judgment Day, lots of people get into heaven, but the rewards will be different based on how well people served God and how well they progressed in their spiritual life. Now, in Matthew's version of the parable, the things play out a bit differently here. The master seems equally happy with the second servant, even though the second servant hasn't made as much of as the first servant. But in Luke's version, as we just saw, the master is not equally happy with both servants. He's happier with the first servant. But keep in mind that in Matthew's parable, the second servant started with less money than the first servant, whereas in Luke's parable... They both have the same amount of money to start with. So when we balance that out, the principle in both parables is the same. The principle is God will judge his people based on what they did with the gifts they were given. That's the principle. God will judge people based on what they did with what he gave them. Verse 20, next came the other servant and he said, Sir, here is your pound. I put it away safely in a piece of linen. So this third servant didn't do anything with the money at all. Now, he's not hiding it from the master, apparently, when he puts it in the the napkin or the linen. He's not trying to hide it from the master. He's actually hiding it from being stolen by others. So he's trying to protect it. The main point here that we're supposed to take away from this is that this third servant was lazy. He chose not to do anything with the money. He was given an instruction to go and trade with it. That's what 
the master told him to do, but he didn't. He didn't do anything with the money. Verse 21. I put it away safely in a piece of linen because I was afraid of you. You are an exacting man. You pick up what you have not put down and reap what you have not sown. Another translation of this is you are a severe man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap where you did not sow. So this is the complaint of the third servant. It appears to mean something like this. Master, king, I know you ask a lot of your servants and you take some of the money that they have made. So apparently, if we understand this correctly, this third servant in the parable, he doesn't want to invest the money. He doesn't want to follow the master's instructions because he thinks the master, the king, is going to take some of the money that was made from his investment. He wants to keep the money for himself. He doesn't want the king to take away some of the money that he might make. So he chooses not to invest it at all. In other words, he doesn't want the king to benefit from his stewardship. He's been quite selfish with the money, basically. Now, if that's his reasoning, it's a pretty bad excuse, isn't it? Because if the servant is acting on behalf of the king, then all of the goods belong to the king anyway. The servant really has no right to say, oh, I I wanted to keep it for myself. That doesn't really make sense. It belongs to the king anyway. Overall, though, whatever the right interpretation of his excuses, we're supposed to see this servant as an example of someone who is lazy. He didn't do what the master told him to do, so his excuses are not justified. Maybe this excuse here, it's supposed to represent Christians who have a false view of God's character or his expectations. Maybe it represents Christians who are afraid of persecution and afraid of being challenged for being a Christian. Ultimately, though, I think we can say this third servant represents Christians who do not listen to and act on Jesus' teachings. It's those who are lazy, basically. It's Christians who know what they're supposed to do, but choose not to do it out of laziness. The servant, he didn't do anything with the gifts he was given. And we know that if the gift, the talent, represents grace, it represents a Christian who did not do anything with the grace that God gave him. It remained stagnant. That's the opposite of what God wants. God wants Christians to produce fruit, not to remain stagnant and not to just keep the grace for themselves. It represents a disciple who, remember in Luke 8, it talks about disciples who fail to produce fruit. This is one of these servants. In contrast, the first two servants bore fruit through perseverance. And you can look at chapter 8, verse 15 for an example of that. So this third servant is an example of a lazy servant, Christian, who does not produce fruit. So, verse 22, the king says, you wicked servant. We don't want God to say that to us, do we? That's pretty harsh language. You wicked servant. Out of your own mouth, I condemn you. So here, the king says, basically, you admit that you did the wrong thing. He goes on, you knew that I was an exacting man, picking up what I have not put down and reaping what I have not sown. So the master admits, apparently, that he does do this sometimes. But of course, It's well within his rights as king to do that because it's his own money. Verse 23, then why did you not put my money in the bank? On my return, I could have drawn it out with interest. So the king expected to receive his investment plus interest. He expected his servants to do banking. That's what he told them to do. If this servant was genuinely worried that the master was concerned about getting money, then really, if the servant is being logical, he should have done the opposite. He should have pursued some sort of financial undertaking in order to make money. And then maybe the king would have let him keep some money for himself and rewarded him. But the servant did the opposite of that. The obvious thing for the servant to do would have been to be faithful 
follow the king's commands and then let the chips fall as they may. But instead he says, no, I'm not going to follow the king's command. I'm going to be selfish and lazy. I think we can see here a parallel to us in terms of us as Christians serving Jesus. You need to know what you're signing up for if you want to be part of the kingdom. Being part of the kingdom, being a Christian, is going to involve serving God faithfully if you want to be part of that kingdom. God chooses to cooperate with us so that we'll bear fruit for his kingdom. He chooses to cooperate with us. He doesn't force us to do anything, but we need to know that being part of the kingdom comes with expectations, and that's all throughout the Gospels, of course. Now, it might seem excessively harsh what the king says here to this third servant, and here's what the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture says. So, this is from the book of Matthew, the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture for the book of Matthew. But I think it applies here to this parable. Confining ourselves to the storyline of the parable, the master's rebuke seems excessively harsh. But if the talents represent each servant's knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, then the severity of the charge is understandable. Being entrusted with the message of salvation entails great responsibility. To sit on that message or to bury it for ourselves is a serious breach of responsibility to the Lord, who calls us to share his good news with the world. He does not want us to give it back to him unshared and unfruitful. So I think that's a really good and insightful quote there about how we should see this as applying to Jesus and the Christian life. Verse 24 Jesus continues telling the parable, the king said to those standing by. Now, who are these that are standing by? This is not in Matthew's version. So I think we can see these people who are standing by the king. They have to be senior officials of the king of some sort. Who would that be on the spiritual level? Who is this representing? I think we could say it represents angels, those who are close to God's throne. Now, that might be taking the parable a bit too far. Maybe this is just a random feature of the parable. Maybe it doesn't represent anyone, but we can sort of see it as representing angels. It's those who are standing by while he rewards his faithful servants on judgment day. Here's what he says to those who are standing by. Take the pound from him and give it to the man who has 10 pounds. So the instruction here is to take the one pound that the third servant had, the one who didn't do a good job, And the instruction is to give that to the first man, the one who already has 10 cities. So the first man is given this additional money because he's been a faithful servant and he has cooperated with grace. The unfaithful servant hasn't cooperated with grace, so he doesn't deserve this reward. The idea here seems to be that the reward that would have been due to the third man was forfeited due to his bad actions. In Matthew's version, this third servant is sent to hell. If you look at Matthew's version of the parable, the third servant ends up in hell, basically. In Luke's version, we don't get to hear the fate of the third man. In fact, there's a later group in the parable, as we'll see. There is a later group that gets sent to hell for doing worse deeds, for rejecting the king completely. But we don't get to find out the fate of this uh, sort of not very good servant. For this reason, a lot of commentators and people who scholars who've looked at the passage... They've suggested that maybe this servant who doesn't do a very good job and who loses a lot of his rewards, maybe it represents a person who's sent to purgatory. It's a Christian who remained in God's grace, but he didn't do a lot of, he didn't cooperate with grace particularly well in his life, perhaps. Or maybe it's someone who represents a person who has a long time in purgatory compared to the other servants. That might be pushing the parable a bit too far, but certainly what it does show us is that I don't think this parable and Matthew's parable are the same. 
Because in Matthew's parable, this faithless servant is sent to hell. But in Luke's parable, he's not sent to hell. Another group is sent to hell. So it probably was a different parable said on different occasions. Verse 25, they said to him, but sir, he has 10 pounds. So here, the people, the people who are in the king's court, they object because it doesn't seem fair to take the reward from the faithless servant. Now, to understand this next part, you need to understand it's not Jesus himself speaking as Jesus. It's the parable is continuing. So the king is continuing to speak here. And in verse 26, the king says, I tell you to everyone who has will be given more. This is one of Jesus' most famous sayings, and he uses it several times, and here he puts it in the mouth of the king. The principle Jesus is giving here is something like this. Those who cooperate with the grace God gives them, and who follow Jesus, they will receive more grace, they'll be drawn further into the kingdom, and they will receive more rewards on judgment day. To everyone who has will be given more, but from the man, from the man who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So, to the Christian who does not use the grace that God gives him, or doesn't use his will to draw closer to God or to follow Jesus, his gifts of grace will be taken away, and he'll receive less rewards in the kingdom of God on Judgment Day. And really, this is a summary of what has just happened to the three people, right? Those who have a lot will be given more because they've cooperated with a lot of God's grace, so they get more rewards. What's Jesus' point here? What's he trying to teach us about the kingdom of God? It's a teaching primarily about what's going to happen at the last judgment, on Judgment Day, when Jesus' return and the kingdom arrives in its fullness. Remember, the crowd thinks the kingdom of God is going to come immediately. Jesus says that that will happen one day, but it's not yet. But when that day comes, and each Christian is going to stand before God, the teaching is, to the one who has genuine faith and draws closer to God and follows Jesus, he's going to receive greater rewards on Judgment Day. To the one who doesn't use his faith or draw closer to God, his rewards on Judgment Day will be taken away. Although we need to qualify that by saying that we don't know the fate of the unfaithful servant in this parable. Maybe he doesn't end up in hell, maybe he does. That's not clear in this parable. Verse 27, the king continues to speak, But as for my enemies who did not want me for their king, bring them here and execute them in my presence. Or more literally there, it actually says, slay them before me. Pretty strong words here, and a lot of scholars struggle with this, because up till now it seems that the king represents Jesus, but now the king says, bring my enemies before me and kill them. Some scholars really struggle with this image of Jesus being someone who slays his enemies. Now, of course, in the book of Revelation, he is depicted that way. He literally slays his enemies. So let's dive into this verse a bit. So it says here, for as for my enemies who did not want me for their king. So this is the citizens from earlier in the parable, the native citizens who refuse to accept him as king. So we're not talking here about the three servants anymore. They're finished. We're now talking about the citizens from early in the parable who didn't even want this person to be their king at all. Jesus says, bring them before me. They're my enemies, and they're the ones that get killed. They're the people who are not allowed to remain in the kingdom of God. That's what it represents. People who are not allowed into the kingdom. Probably a reference to hell. It's people who reject Jesus as king. So on judgment day, they get sent to hell. That's probably the implication here. In Matthew's version, it very clearly is hell. It actually says they'll be sent to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in in Matthew's version, it's made clear that this is hell. Since the primary reference here to, remember earlier we said that 
this group of people who reject Jesus as king, who does that represent? It has to be the Jewish leaders in Jesus' time. So some believe here when Jesus says, bring them here and slay them before me, it could represent judgment day. In fact, it probably does. But if the primary reference here is to Jewish leaders, it could represent 70 AD when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. As we've been saying in the last few episodes, when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, one aspect of those events is that it's a punishment from God. One of the reasons the temple was destroyed was as a punishment from God against the Jewish leaders. The city, brings, the city of Jerusalem brings a divine curse upon itself for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So when Jesus here says in the parable, or the king says in the parable, bring my enemies here and slay them in my presence. Maybe it's a reference to what's going to happen to the Jewish leaders because they refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah. It's a prophecy, in other words, about 70 AD. So notice what Jesus does with this parable. He's speaking to the crowds and he simultaneously does two things. He corrects the false views of the crowd that the kingdom is going to come immediately. And he reminds the crowd, the Christian crowd, of their own responsibility to follow his will if they want to be part of the kingdom. It warns against the dangers of sloth, where God's blessings and abilities that he gives are squandered out of fear and laziness. Those who are diligent in working for the kingdom, using the gifts God has given them, will increase their rewards in heaven. On top of that, it also serves as a warning against the Jewish leaders. If there's Jewish leaders listening to Jesus at this point, which there probably are, it's sort of a subtle hint or a subtle warning that they need to be careful that in rejecting Jesus, they don't get punished. Verse 28, so that's the end of the parable, and now Luke adds this sort of narrative comment, verse 28. When Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Notice here that Luke mentions the city, he mentions Jerusalem. Maybe Luke does that deliberately to help his readers, his audience, understand that the citizens of the parable represent the citizens of Jerusalem. Maybe that's why he highlights that Jesus goes on to Jerusalem here. That would make sense because remember, the parable was given in connection with the fact that the people in the crowd believed that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem to bring in the kingdom. The king is going to be rejected in Jerusalem. Jesus will be rejected. And we know that as a result, it brings about the destruction of the city. So there probably is a good case to be made that in the parable, the primary reference here to the group that's killed at the end is the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem in particular. So Luke here says, Jesus goes on up to Jerusalem. Jesus has finally arrived at Jerusalem. This is the end of a very long journey in the Gospel of Luke, as you know, if you've been following the podcast for a while. Jesus takes a while to get to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke. He has now finally arrived. The journey started back in chapter 9, Now we're in chapter 19, he finally gets to Jerusalem. The very next section of chapter 19 is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. That's only read once in the liturgical year. It's read on Palm Sunday in year C, but it's not read as the gospel reading. It's read as the entrance gospel reading. Um, On Palm Sunday, there's two readings. There's one as you come into the church, and then there's one at the normal place the gospel is read at the Mass. So this is read as the entrance reading on Palm Sunday. Let's quickly turn to the Catechism before we finish this longer episode today. Paragraph 1936. This is in the section about how Jesus and God brings about differences among people. On coming into the world, man is not equipped with everything he needs for developing his body and spiritual life. He needs others. 
Differences appear tied to age, physical abilities, intellectual or moral aptitudes, the benefits derived from social commerce, and the distribution of wealth. The talents are not distributed equally. So here the catechism refers to the parable of the talents, although it uses talents in perhaps a different way. It talks here about talents representing people's age, physical abilities, their intellectual abilities. As we said, on the literal sense of the parable, it refers primarily to God's grace. But there probably is a way you can extend this meaning of talents to represent every property that God gives a person, every way that God brings about differences between people. Paragraph 1880, this is in the section about the communal character of the human vocation. So it's in the section about what is a society. A society is a group of persons bound together organically by a principle of unity that goes beyond each one of them. As an assembly that is at once visible and spiritual, a society endures through time. It gathers up the past and prepares for the future. By means of society, each man is established as an heir and receives certain talents that enrich his identity and whose fruits he must develop. He rightly owes loyalty to the communities of which he is a part and respect to those in authority who have charge of the common good. So again there, this is an interesting teaching about society. Often people don't look at this section of the Catechism, which is about what the Catholic Church sees that a society should be. There's a reference in here to the talents that enrich a person's identity. And again here, the reference is to the parable of the talents from Luke, from Luke 19. I'll include both of those paragraphs in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned something new from this fascinating parable of the talents. And in the next weekday episode... Remember, we skip over the Palm Sunday section, so the next weekday episode, we'll look at verses 41 to 44, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Thanks, we'll see you again tomorrow.